Uh, did you guys all see uh, the Enlightenment OS's uh, post about the importance of our brand? Did everybody catch this uh, blog post? I <laughs> <laughs> told them about it. Uh, okay. All right. So here we go. Um, this is uh, Elementary OS, and they put forth uh, sort of a, hey, community, this is how we'd like you to represent us. Could you stop doing, like, knockoff screenshots and then posting them online and, and saying it's called EOS? By the way, don't call it EOS. We will never call it EOS. Don't make e-music. Don't make e-web. That sounds stupid. We don't want that. So don't call it EOS. Don't make e-apps. And please stop ripping off, like, OS ten because we're worried Apple's going to send us a cease and desist if you guys keep it up. Uh, so they kind of go on and talk about how important brands are, about how, and I actually agree with a lot of what they talk about with brands. I think this is one of the advantages the Enlightenment, or I'm sorry, the Elementary OS project has, is they get this. However, it's also it's essentially a blog post telling people what they are allowed and not allowed to say about free software. And as you might have guessed, where the neckbeards hang out, there has been much, much angst. Popey, you said you trolled them. What was your take on it? Oh no! It was just uh, one of the guys, Sam, who who does um, some of the icons uh, and does the new mixing. I think he he um, posted a screenshot and said, uh, you know, and tweaked it and said, "This is my screenshot of Elementary," and didn't say it was Elementary OS. And I asked him if it was EOS. <laughs> oh and Daniel, no! Daniel turns up and he's like, "Yeah, very funny guys." <laughs> so, uh, how do you guys feel about it? What do you, how do you feel about a Linux distribution coming out and saying, "Hey, this is how we'd like to you refer to us," or "Hey, this we don't want you to refer to us this way." I think it's fine for them to do that internally if that's their if that's yeah. uh, for their staff and their direct developers and their direct community members fine but to tell users to do that is a bit of a dick move. Yeah. Oh it's the same thing with mate or cute or qt. No it's not it's not it's branding it's just they're asking you to do mate something. Mate is a brand and they're There's... like oh don't ever call it mate. No, I was just having fun with that when I posted that in the subreddit. I'm sorry everyone got bent out. No, no, no. That's a difference. That's a that's a pronunciation versus uh so here's here's a more of an example. Like I here's something that maybe would bug me. Say somebody made a Jupyter broadcasting uh, app for uh, uh, Ubuntu Touch, but they lowercased the B in broadcasting. That would drive me crazy, even though it's a small little thing. That just doesn't look right. That's not our branding. That That's the kind of thing they're talking about. They don't want e-music. Like, you have iTunes. They don't want e-tunes, those kinds of things. Um, but then it, you, you're not officializing the app, so what's the problem? I mean, open just say, just tell them to drop the thing as well. They, you, you can. You own the brand. You can tell them to drop the, the name. Okay, is the question, are they asking people to do this, or are they telling people to do this? That's the main question. Well, they're just asking, who cares? It's they're very, making a it's, request. Well, it's very politically worded. I mean, it, you could almost see maybe a few years, it, this kind of stance could evolve into issuing cease and desist, potentially. Well, uh, no, I don't think has, it's that strong. Well, no, but here's it, why. I mean, but this is, the, this is the thing. I would see that, that kind of communique coming out on an internal mailing list at canonical talking about ubuntu i could see that i could see someone saying look if you're going to put out screenshots that are promoting the product use the default items that are in the launcher use the default icons that are in the indicator area use one of the default backgrounds yeah that all makes sure, sense sure, you're yeah. on message right yeah and that you're talking to people who work on the product who are talking about the product but when you're telling people who are in your community who are enthusiasts who aren't necessarily contributors and you see them as posting a screenshot, it makes them a contributor, therefore they should abide by the guidelines, I think that's wrong-headed. 
Well, and you know, not well, only that, but I think it's wasted effort. It's wasted effort, and on top yep. of that, uh, you've real. What you're really saying, Popey, is if you internally message correctly, and then when you dis- when you discuss it, when you talk about things externally, and you all agree on the language, and then you use that same language when you discuss things externally, your community just picks up on that and rolls with it, and that's how they start right. referring to things. The problem right. is they used I mean, EOS but- a couple of times themselves back in the day. Right, and, but I yeah, the messages did. change over time. You know, you can, you could. It may well be they didn't formalize their branding until recently. Right, you know, that, that's fine. And they, they may have had a meeting about well, it. Well, and, and maybe a lawyer said, "Hey, hey, you know, we're 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 a little concerned about that highly litigious fruit company that makes uh, iPhones." And, uh, you know, if you guys keep going this direction where, I mean, let's be honest, elementary OS looks a lot like Mac OS X. And if you have third-party themes out there that make it look even more like Mac OS X, and then you start having things like eTunes and eWeb, I I would not be surprised if Apple issued a cease and desist. I mean, didn't it happen to Pair PC or whatever it was? No, there's there's no music and stuff. Well, we don't really know what happened there. Well, yeah, I know. But you you get my drift. Maybe that's what they're worried about. So, but here's the thing, though. Apple they are worried. Technically, they were. Technically, they are worried about this way long before. Like initially, as a or former contributor, I should say, like two, three years ago, I was contributing to the project, and there was these talks about licensing things about the website because they wanted to protect the branding. Yeah, and, like, yeah. They they had like licensing stuff that are weird. They they yeah. closed themselves into the Google Plus walls because they didn't want people to start talking about things that are going to come out. I don't know what are Yeah, no, I think they are. I think they're, they're they're punching above their weight slightly. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think slightly a lot. Yeah, I think I think that's partially it is. I think that they are very 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 brand conscious. Extremely extremely brand conscious. And uh, they they feel like it's important to set the tone right and to, and to keep it that way. And I don't necessarily disagree with that because uh, we just had a conversation about the KDE project. And I think a big part of their issue that they now face is improper branding originally or inconsistent branding. And I, I, I can't really blame the Enlightenment or I'm sorry, elementary guys. Obviously, they have some branding problems because I'm too dumb to remember it. I, I can't really blame elementary OS for <laughs> wanting to have a strong brand. Yes, that's their fault that you're dumb. Right, and yeah, of we, course. <laughs> we, we had the same problem, um, actually, when we changed the logo. Do you remember when our logo oh, yeah. used to be three colors? Yes. The like Circle of Friends, right? And now it's one color, and it's a specific DD4814 Ubuntu Orange. And if you, that's the hex code, by the way, DD4814. Nice, dude. Um, nice. And for those of us who forget <laughs> I remember that. It, for some reason, someone set up DD4814.com. So and it's just a big orange screen, so you know that that's the right <laughs> color, right? Yeah, I um, love it. And but the thing is, when that when that logo came out, people still afterwards use the old logo in um, in their websites and materials and blog posts. And what? some of our de- design team used to get a little bit annoyed, and they'd send little pings to the people to say, "Hey, can you can you change your fav icon because it's the old logo, and we're now using the new one? Can you change that article? Can you change this?" And and some of them got a little bit funny and got a little bit upset about people not using the new logo. So I can see how yeah. people can get a little bit funny about the branding being missing. Right. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's embracing the sun and just barbecued up some tasty chicken. My name is Chris. And my name is Matt. Hey, Matt. I'm telling you, man. I, I went over to Savannah Meats, you know, best meat around. I got one of those whole chickens. I put it on its... Have you ever, you've seen the beer butt chicken before? Have you seen oh, yeah. that? Yeah. Well, this is like an official like cast iron beer butt permanent chicken fixture that you put the chicken on top of. Some oil, garlic, some bacon grease, some dry rub. Matt, Matt best chicken I've had all year. 
So good. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so nice. I'm coming off a nice, fresh chicken meal. And uh, it turned out delicious, but that did mean we closed up all the windows at JB1 Studios, so it is hot here today. That's okay. <laughs> I'm going to refresh myself with some good Linux topics. That's, uh, that's, that'll be there my source of refreshment. Um, you know, we had, some, uh, we, had a, we had a lot of really good comments on last week's episode of Linux Action Show. I'm really glad you guys liked them all. And uh, our first bit of follow-up in that area came in the topic of containers. Now, if you didn't catch last week's Linux Action Show, we talked about how the GNOME project, Guadic, their big conference, is coming up. And one of the things that's going to be hot on the topic list is containerization and um, sandboxing of applications on the Linux desktop. And we mentioned, boy, this could we could see how this could maybe raise some ire in the Linux community, and we suspected people might get a little upset. Well, Matt, that's just exactly where our, our first feedback is going to take us this week, is right to that topic. So oh uh, if you want more details on that, you can uh, jump in on last week's Linux Action Show. But you don't have to. We'll get you up to date right here uh, because it was Crossroads1112 that wrote in. And Crossroads is, let's see, is he in the, uh, no, Crossroads, you should have joined us for the virtual lug. That would have been perfect. Anyways, he wrote, he wrote in, he said, here's my concerns with containerization of software on the desktop. He said, let me preface this by saying that it's not a rant. I'm not yelling or screaming about the possibility. It's very possible that my concerns will be addressed and these will be non-issues. So it seems like he's being pretty rational about it. He says, up first, my first concern, which is the exact same thing you said on the show on Sunday, Matt, updating. As Matt said, putting software in containers could make updating more difficult. Um, And I actually, I think that's funny because I think the way he's thinking about it is like through through a software manager, uh, like, you know, or I'm sorry, a package manager like Pac-Man or Apt. I think contained applications are going to be delivered through app stores. I really do. You've got the GNOME Software Center, whatever they're calling oh, it, that they're working on, right? right? KDE's got something they're working on. I really think when you get these apps, they're going to be distributed. A lot of the distributions are doing this already. Like if you have Fedora today, you can use the GNOME Software Center, and it uses PackageKit to install applications for you. They're pretty much one of the few distributions it doesn't work on is Arch. There's no PackageKit interface to Pac-Man. Uh, that aside, if you if you look at that, maybe that'd be one way they could handle it. So, Crossroads, I wouldn't worry too much about updating. Uh, and I also think uh, your package manager will still be available to you. He says, there could also be possible app compatibility. Now, this is the one I was worried about. I forgot to mention it in the show. He says, what if I need software A to interact with software B, but no API to allow those two to talk, right? Because they're both individually in sandboxes. They can't even see each other. They're not even aware each other are running. And so if there isn't an API to allow them to communicate, then they, there's, there's not going to happen. He says, obviously, this wouldn't be a problem for probably about 95% of interactions, but for the 5%, it would be a huge problem. And that's a great question. I'm sure they, they, they actually have, um, they have talked about a solution to solve that problem. They have a good name for it, too. I just forgot what it was. I don't know if anybody in the mumble room is aware of the name that the GNOME project's talking about to allow applications to communicate. It's like, uh, it's like the way the Android system work, uh, works. It's like the way Windows Mobile does and the new iOS extensions. It's that same kind of there's an infrastructure in place, and then applications can communicate via that infrastructure. So they have addressed it, but I don't know the details on it. And then, last but not least, this is the one I think probably resonated with a lot of the folks. The Linux way of installing software is better than the Windows way. I don't want to go hunting around the Internet for software containers like I do on Windows. I want to install software either from the terminal or a GUI, either it be Synaptic or Pac-Man XG, Ubuntu App Store, etc. Perhaps I've been spoiled by the AUR and the ability to install pretty much any package without Internet hunting. And uh, that's a great point. But again, I think if they deliver it through app stores, I think that could help. Now, I'm not saying app stores are the future of Linux. I'm talking right. about a specific kind of apps, like no maps, right, and, and things like that. 
that will be available through these software centers that at first will seem very awkward and, and clunky to use on the Linux desktop because we all love our you know, Pac-Man-S. But it, it's one of those things that I think after a while will just seem natural. Like all of your main tools will still be available at the command line. I mean, man, this has to be the way of the future, right? Well, so here's the way I see it, and I'm and correct me if I'm wrong, but potentially if we did go with the pack, you know, a package manager for say containers, for example, instead of installing applications, wouldn't you just be able to just install the uh, like a new container over the old one? I yeah. mean, wouldn't that be a yeah, exactly. So in, in essence, yeah. So in essence, it really becomes a moot issue. You're still you could literally arrange it to where you could still use the command line. You could still use a GUI. Um, you know, Bob's your uncle. Yeah, um, very much so. Uh, Wimpy, you wanted to key uh, to key in on the Android aspect of this. Go ahead. Well, APKs are containerized applications just by another name. The APK mm. uh, contains everything that the application requires, including libraries for multiple architectures, and your user data lives elsewhere. So, yeah, I think delivered through an app store type um, presentation, it would work. And the GNOME extensions already, you know, deploys the extensions via the the extensions website, which mm-hmm. is App Store like. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't know what the big fuss is about. This is nothing new to anyone really. We've been doing this for years now. Uh Popey, uh, this is probably a problem that's being solved on Ubuntu Touch, correct? Yep. We have um click packages which are containered applications. They can't uh talk to each other directly but they can talk to each other via content hub for example so they can pass messages backwards and forwards and like you know your gallery app can get a photo from the camera or you can download a music file via the web browser and send it to the music app that kind of stuff same kind of stuff that that happens on android and yeah we have a central app store but equally the same as matt was saying you could still install stuff via the command line because the click packages you could go and download or someone could build one for you, a custom one, side load it on the phone and install it. I don't don't think there's anything um, terribly bad going on here. It makes total sense. And yeah, it's it's got an app store just like you say. Yeah, and I think people, one of the other comments I've seen as well, man, one of the things I love about Linux is that everything is dynamically linked. I, I don't think that goes away. In fact, you could have these packages work in a sense where if the necessary libraries are there and they're the correct version, it uses those. And if the necessary libraries are not there or the correct version is not present, it uses something that's internal or, or statically linked or something like that. Um, so that's a possibility. But also you think about it, what I think what the way I'm envisioning this is layered, right? So you'll have the very, very top layer of a Linux desktop system or laptop system that has sandbox applications, a sandbox display manager, a sandbox desktop, sandbox web browser. And it truly guarantees or gets as close as we can to guaranteeing a safe, private open source desktop, okay? I think that's the top layer. Then just below that, you have all the GNU utilities, you have all of the command line stuff, all the package manager stuff, all the shared libraries. It doesn't go away. It's still there. And then below that, you have like system D, and then you get down to the kernel. And that's essentially how I'm seeing this structured, right? Uh, and it does, it does mean things a little differently. And I wouldn't be surprised if these containers were just simply installed to your home directory. Maybe there'd be like an apps folder in your home directory. And, uh, and then you just back that up, and you've just backed up all of the installed applications on Linux. And one of the things they talk about in the GNOME sense is if you, if you have these containers, 
these these bundle files, these APKs, then the GNOME desktop can be aware of those and what they are, and you could have a descriptor file, a .desktop file, in those APKs, and you could automatically have the shortcuts added to the GNOME menu regardless of where they're at as long as the GNOME desktop reads that file. So you could back up that entire directory, do a clean install, drop that entire directory back into your home folder, point the GNOME menu at it. It would reread all of the .desktop files and recreate all of the links in your GNOME application menu for those apps. It's pretty cool, and it makes backup a hell of a lot easier. And if yes. you think about, like, like you know how my mom backs up her Mac right now? Is this, She doesn't, like, she never even thought about it any other way. She never, like, right. thought about how I should back it up. She goes, she got an external USB drive, and then she went and took her Photoshop folder, and she clicked it from her applications folder and drug it to the hard drive and said, okay, I've backed up. And to her, she's Ooh. backed up the program now. And that's how she thinks oh, about no. it is this is, right, exactly. So oh, this God. is something that regular users have a hard time understanding, and they have certain expectations that binaries are portable to them by, by their very nature. I should be able to pick up a binary off one computer and drop it on another computer and just run it. And if you can't do that, then there's something wrong with the operating system because that's the operating system's job is to run applications. That's how they see it. They don't think about libraries and all that kind of independencies and all that kind of stuff. And I think this, I think this is going to go huge to addressing that because I don't think it's going to neuter the power users. You guys know me. I'm the first person to be like, Screw the fictional new user. Focus on the power user. You know that's usually my mantra. But in this case, I think it gives enough benefits to new users and enough benefits to power users and enough security and privacy that I think it's a win-win. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of desktops implement this. Oh, definitely. I think if we're in a position to where it's like, look, I can still pop a drop-down terminal and pound out what I need to to get my software updated or installed – I can't see why anyone would have a problem. That's that's just my philosophy. There you go. All right. Uh, ben wrote in to update us on his command line challenge. Quick thank you, too. <laughs> we got some reports in. Some folks were like, dude, I like had uh, this one guy's like, dude, I had a netbook run an Arch. Uh, it was my only machine because my main computer died. I had it for like three months, or I think it was two months. Only could use yeah. the command line. It was no problem. However, Ben, who wrote in last week about starting the command line challenge, wrote in this week to give us an update. He says, hey, guys, I just want to give you an update to the command line challenge. I hate to say it, but I caved. <laughs> I caved. On Thursday, I logged back into my desktop, fired up Ice Weasel. I just couldn't do it anymore. The nice thing is I'm now way more comfortable in the command line than I was before. Great point. That's a great benefit. He says, thanks for the show. So the command line challenge didn't last too long for Ben. Uh, <laughs> hey, Ben, no judgy here. It wouldn't last much longer. We got an email. Was like, uh, somebody's like, dude, as a, as a longtime sysadmin and, and pen tester, like, how do you not understand living in the command line? And I wrote him back, and I was like, dude. You don't understand at all. I, I, I live, I fight for the GUI. I fought for the user. I, I was there through the bad days and, and all the industry crap that we had to slog through to get decently performing GUI desktops. I don't want to go back. And I like my web browser. I right. like my VLC. I like uh, you know my, my instant messaging client and all that stuff. I don't want to go back. I could just do because, it. Yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you want to. Right, exactly. That's exactly it. That's how I felt about it. It's like, but dude. Dude, command line. I'm like, bro, I know. I know about the <laughs> command line. All right. Uh, Roy wrote in with two questions for the uh, virtual lug. He says, hey, all, my name is Roy. Over the last year, I've set up a couple emails. I've sent a couple emails you mentioned on the show about my moving to Arch experience. Oh, great, Roy. Uh, he's like, okay. And this is what I love about Roy because he's right where my head's at right now. He says, I'm all in on declouding. And for almost every service now I use, I, am, uh, I attempt to establish in my own I'm trying to set up my own service on my own fanless Arch server at home. Nice. So I was looking at email servers, and I think he's directing this at you, Mumble Room, and I recently found the Colab suite. 
Does anyone have experience with Colab, i.e., is it any good? And do you know, this is the second part, do you know how to install it on Arch as I failed to find it? Anybody have Colab? Anybody tried it on Arch in the mumble room? we got a big group here today. Nobody. I, I haven't tried it on Arch, but I have tried it. Hmm. What do you think of Colab in general, Wimpy? It's, it's quite good if you haven't used something better. Oh! That's <laughs> what I'd say. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I did try it um, at, at work. We've been using Zimbra for some years, and we're we're looking to decide whether we're going to upgrade to the new Zimbra or move to something else. So I've I've had a go through all of the sort of um, big collaboration suites that you can run on open source platforms, and Colab was obviously one of those I tried, and it it is very good, but it it, it doesn't stand up against um, Zimbra very well. Oh, I was, that's what I was going to ask you. See, that's mm. exactly what I'm finding mm. too. But the the, the counter argument there is is that these days Zimbra isn't that open source friendly. Mm-hmm. It's not as open source friendly as it used to be uh, a couple of years ago. So there's not the packages that are available for the different distributions now. It's a lot more heavy lifting involved. It's not as well documented. So it swings and roundabouts. So, you know, Colab's definitely very good. Um, not as good as Zimbra, but I'm probably not going to use Zimbra either. Uh, go ahead, Eric. You had a question about... Uh... Yeah, my question about uh, that app is this. Is it open source, and does he know how to compile it? If not, then I'm sure somebody could walk him through it. Colab? Yeah, and there's packages, too. Uh, yeah. I, although, I ch- I've looked at it. I haven't tried it extensively. The the one of the bunch that I've actually had production deployments, and it was probably a version or so ago, was Zimbra. Um, and, you know, uh, this declouding thing, it's definitely something I'm starting to take very seriously. Uh, before, it's always been sort of intellectual masturbation for me, like how would I accomplish it? I feel like I spent the last year kind of intellectually masturbating different ways to get out of the cloud. Um, and, and sort of, again, my favorite new word, digesting, like what are the ramifications of that we're learning? And if you guys watch Tech Talk today and Unfilter, uh, you might have heard about uh, some more recent revelations that came out that are just uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable. Uh, today, the, I ran a story on Tech Talk Today about um, the U.S. government saying the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to data stored in cloud services. That physical, oh, seriously. Yeah, that physical, that physical uh, protections don't apply to digital goods, and that, that that authority allows them to not just reach within the U.S., but they're trying to currently get data off of a Dublin server that Microsoft has for a drug trafficking case. And to me, I don't... I don't think I'm going to be targeted, but I just I feel like that a is something that I'm not comfortable with, and I need to vote with my with my own body, with my own usage. And b I feel like in order for these things to these independent options to exist, people have to be using them. There has to be consumer demand for them to thrive, or else they'll just go away if they don't have a user base. And I'm somebody who's in a position to use them, so I sort of almost feel a responsibility in some sense. So the big one for me is Gmail, Google, calendars. Uh, and the Google one's a big one, right? Because that's really very integrated these days. I, I, I really got to be honest, like Google Calendars is my favorite calendar implementation. Uh, Gmail's probably my favorite webmail, right? And um, so I've been trying to think of how do I move out of the cloud, but not just move out, but make it a better experience for me. And how, how and, I've, and the way I'm looking at it is I'll try one thing for a little while. And I'll see like, okay, if I do this off of Google, like I've tried HackPad for a little bit. And uh, I'm looking at setting up Etherpad for a little while and trying that. And maybe, uh, you know, uh, switching to BitTorrent Sync more instead of Dropbox and BitTorrent Sync. These kinds of things I'm trying to find out how I can kind of not get off the grid, but have more of a say in, this, in the services I choose. Because one of the things I'm discovering, too, is like with Android in particular, 
is, you know, once you once you opt in at one level, you kind of go all in, and you you kind of like you end up on the grid regardless. You don't have a choice. If you wanted to use a device, like this is why I'm so excited about things like Ubuntu Touch from Firefox OS, because I want to have a device where I can elect to use uh, maybe BitTorrent Sync for my photo sync, maybe my own LDAP server for my contacts, and my own IMAP server, and have that experience be a first-class experience. Not have it be hobbled because I'm not using the Gmail app, because I'm not using the Calendar app, because that's what you get on Android now, is if you choose not to opt into the Google experience, all of the Google services, you get second-rate applications. And that I'm sick of. I'm so sick and tired of that, is that that force opt-in, you're all in, balls deep, you got the tracking, we got data on you, you've got an account with us. you got a Google Plus account now. Have at it, bro. Welcome to Android. And that I'm sick of. That I'm sick and tired of because there's other ways out there. There's other services out there. You know, maybe I want to use Amazon for my music. You can do all of it on Android today, but it's becoming less and less of an option. And that drives me crazy because it's all running on top of Linux. And it's, that's one of my, the things that really gets me. And so I'm totally right where he's at right now. Where I'm looking at, like, what can we bring in-house? Not only can I have it on the land so it runs better, but now I don't have to worry about this weird, like, sure, if, they, if you know, the U.S. government wants to come get emails that were sent to me by some listener, then they'll have to come knock on the actual studio door and hand me a warrant. They can't just deliver it through some automated system to Google, and then Google just extracts it from my Google account and delivers it to them. They have to come to me to get it. And at least that's something. At least that I know it's happening. But I'm legitimately in a position where people send me confidential information that's encrypted. I communicate with people that are all over the world on a daily basis. I research stuff that's obviously going to, in some cases, be considered by some agencies worth monitoring. I mean, it's at, at what point do you start going, okay, maybe I should start taking some steps to preserve my own privacy and put things under my own control. And then I start thinking about it from a father's perspective. And I start thinking about when my son and daughter come to me for school or whatever, and they say, okay, dad, we need an email account. Do I want to elect? Yeah, exactly. Do I want to say, okay, guys, go get a Google account. Have a lifetime of your information being observed by Google. I don't think that's a good idea. So I want to set some stuff up, too. So I'm, I'm thinking about it a lot, but, it, you know, it's really hard to make a move and not take a considerable hit in functionality these days. I feel like with... Well, it feels like there's a lack of out-of-the-box options, you know, really. Yeah, that's for sure. And if you really want, like, the stuff that everybody's really excited about, you know, you got to kind of opt into the system a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so it's something... So I have right now on my Nexus 5, I'm triple booting... Um, uh, I'm going to put L on there. I don't have L on there right now. I just have the latest Android, but... Uh, Ubuntu Touch and Firefox OS. Uh, I, I tell you, out of the three, um, uh, Android is obviously the one that's the most feature complete for me because it's got things that I use like Waze and Evernote, which I only really use when I'm traveling. But it's nice to have them when I do need them. So it's not like I need them all the time. But Ubuntu Touch, you know, as far as like, then compared to Firefox OS, I definitely think I prefer the Ubuntu Touch experience. So I figure I'm going to triple boot that for a little while and see what that's like. But at the end of the day, I have to be a realistic. I want a smartphone that has a great camera because I have three adorable children. And I want to be able to send those pictures to my wife when I take a great picture. And if I get lost, I want to be able to launch ways. And I don't think that's unreasonable to expect from a smartphone. Well, and I think what's scary is that if I'm not – and correct, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Google actually purchased Waze. So that yeah, app that yeah. we all love. Yeah, I know, yeah. So we're, it's like it's, – it's, what they're doing is you're like, okay, Google, I'm finally free. Oh, you know, I got, got that one app I really like, and Google's yeah. like, we own it. Yeah, and it sucks because it's like, okay, so what's your alternative? Some podunk GPS right. thing? I'm going to I mean, uh, I'm gonna geez, have to you know? um, uh, use uh, Nokia Here Maps or whatever they're called. Well, oh, in fact, God. Google Maps actually uses – information from Waze now 
Yes, it's yeah, actually kind of handy. Surprised. Yeah, I mean, all of it's very. Uh, and the value of this is negative. It's all very, uh, you know, negative. But I, I tell I mean, you, the solution, of course, is Bing Maps. Yeah, there you go. I'm thinking about there it. There you go. I'm thinking about <laughs> it. Yeah. I, I think part of it, and this is yeah. uh, to get. To, actually, yeah, I should probably, right. I should probably take a little break right here and thank our first sponsor because to get to yeah. get to it. Ting is part of that stack, right? And there, this is this is a part that desperately needs address, and that's why I'm really enthusiastic about Ting. So go to linux.ting.com. That'll get you $25 off your first device, or if you already have a device compatible with Ting, $25 a credit. Now, here's why Ting's great. No contract. They just kill that, and you only pay a flat $6 per month per line. The reason why this is huge is it changes the value model completely. Instead of trying to trick you into paying more than you need so that way you don't go over, you just pay for what you use. And if you need hotspot and tethering, you check the box, and now it's just your data usage. That's genius. Ting is open like that, too. I tell you what, I had Ubuntu Touch on the Nexus 5, fired it up, got right on the Ting network, started making calls. Couldn't hang up with the Ubuntu Touch operating system, but I could make calls on the Ting network. That was cool, and the hanging up part was a bug, which is fixed now. And it's really great. Yeah, I just have that freedom and flexibility. Plus, they have fantastic support. You can call them at one eight five five ting ftw and a real person answers the phone. How nice is that when your phone's not working and you're frustrated no and you just want to get right? You just want to get it solved. You just want to get That's it solved. Right. And they'll help you get out of your contract. If, the, if you go over to ting.com slash ETF, they have an early termination relief program. They'll pay up to $75 per line that you have to get canceled. So that'll get you out of your contract. Then you can go contract free. And uh, check out their savings calculator when you go to linux.ting.com. Put your current details in there. Your actual usage, not what you're paying for, you know, not, not how they're scamming you, but what you actually end up using and see how much you would save. And this is the, the, I've been talking to the folks over at Ting about my current frustrations with vendor lock-in. And so they sent me over an iPhone 5 for free. I'll be trying out iOS 8 and doing an iOS 8 and Android L head-to-head comparison in the future. So if you've got any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear it. Noah, don't cry, though. Don't cry, Noah. I know he's up in the mumble room right now like, what? Yes, I'll probably, I'll probably have an iPhone 5 <laughs> running iOS 8 at OSCon. I know. It's egregious. I know. It's absolutely egregious. But it's an interesting <laughs> experiment. And I'm going to see, uh, can, I, can I connect to my own, uh, my own IMAP server, my own LDAP server? Can I use BitTorrent Sync as my storage backend? Because iOS 8 is supposed to have some sort of application extension linking. I don't know. But what I'm really curious huh. about is how do the two operating systems stack up? And Ting's like, dude, we'll send you an iPhone 5 to try it. So I got an iPhone 5 for a little bit. I'll be kicking the tires, and uh, I'll give you my thoughts on that in the future and uh, see how L and iOS 8 stack up. Both maybe as the OSs get a little closer to maturity, I'll do that comparison. Go to linux.ting.com. they got a lot of great phones. The Nexus 5 runs amazing on the Ting network. That's my daily driver. You can get the iPhone 5 through their partners at Glide for $250. You own it. $250. You own it. Off contract, $6 a month. They've also got MiFi devices if you need a data connection. So you can go over there and rock that for a flat $6 a month. It's a $6 hotspot at that point. Linux.ting.com. Go see what I've been talking about. Go see why Ting rocks so hard. And now I've got three devices on my Ting network. How about that? Three devices. Nice. Look at me. I'm like a I'm like a phone roller, <laughs> the phone ranger over here. So uh, we'll give you. I'll give you my report soon. Linux.ting.com. Go check them out. Go get it. Go get yourself a great phone. They got feature phones, Android phones, Windows phones, all of it. Linux.ting.com. And a really big thank you to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Love that. Good deal. That's All right. sweet. All right, Noah, are you okay, Noah? Are you okay? I'm calming down. I'm glad that you're bringing an iPhone because I was hoping we could make it to the gun range. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, I think Noah's going for large caliber on this. Noah's going to be know. like, you know, I know I'll he's mine. Noah's like, <laughs> I know he's got a Nexus 5 with him, so if I end up destroying the iPhone, I know he's not going to be out of communication, so there's little risk is what he's thinking. Uh, walking in with a desert eagle, yeah. Hey, exactly. I, I, you know, we talk a lot on the show 
actually, this is the I is the wrong way to describe this. One thing that we never talk about on the show, but people who watch the video version see this all the time, is um, my desktop setup. And uh, we got a request in from uh, Kaz21 just to kind of go over a little bit of what I use. And some of the stuff I use, I know a lot of the mumble folks use. Uh, so uh, here, I'll show you. If, uh, Kaz, if you're watching the uh, video version of Linux Unplugged, here is essentially what I use on my GNOME box. So for the theme, this is, the, uh, I guess I should say, this is the latest version of GNOME. Uh, my window theme is Numix. The GTK theme is Numix. My icons are Numix Circle. My cursor is oxygen white. That way it pops and I can see it. And I have the Sequito shell to get the nice transparencies, which are cut off on my camera shot. You can't see them. My Conky setup you asked about, I'm actually just cheating. I'm using Conky Manager, an app pick before that sets it up. And it's actually a little broken right now, but I like the way it looks. Uh, and I have, uh, I have Global Dark theme turned on. So it's a nice, yes, flat. I know, I know, it's flat. It's a nice, flat GTK theme. <laughs> Uh, that uh, I like quite a bit. Mumble Room, you guys have anything you do to tweak your desktop? Oh, the other thing I do is I have a bunch of uh, tweaks installed for Firefox, but you guys can't really see those most of the time. So that's kind of it. I have a, Oh, I guess I could cover my extensions. I have a ton of extensions, actually. Um, new, I mean, Numix kind of changed. I just kind of, once Numix came out, I kind of went all in on Numix. Uh, but my, exten- my, favorite, uh, my favorite GNOME desktop extensions are the audio output switcher, which allows me to toggle my audio sources really super quick, which is great since I'm doing that all the time. Uh, the caffeine extension, dash to dock, must have. It, it's my favorite dock, and it's just built right in now. Uh, extension update notifier, uh, to-do.txt. Top icons, you guys can't see this either, but all of the notification icons that normally go down in the tray on GNOME are now up along the top, like old school, sort of uh, applet style along the top of my bar, which is nice. And, uh, oh, this is the best one. i got to find it. Where's the, uh, where's the best one? It's like uh, um, minimum, uh, minimum workspaces or something like that. Uh, top icons. This is the one that made GNOME finally really work for me. And what it does is it essentially establishes a set of fixed desktops. So it kills the dynamic desktop thing. So I always have at least four desktops available to me. And then once I use the fourth desktop, then it begins to do dynamic workspace management and create virtual desktops for me on demand as I need them. Uh, so I, I, thought it was, I thought it was called minimum workspaces, but I'm not seeing the extension now. I uh, totally recommend you get that one, though, because for me, it, it totally helped me wrap my brain around the way virtual workspaces work in GNOME. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Anybody in the mumble room have anything they want to chime in with uh, their favorite setup on, on GNOME or KDE? Any new themes? Yeah, I would uh, suggest the if you're as far as Conky goes, uh, Numix has a really cool Conky layout. Oh. And uh, it's kind of like it looks like Google Now, but you can make it uh, blend with your desktop as well. Uh, but there's also uh, I love Gtile extension. Yes, yeah, Gtile. Uh, G- yep, for Firefox yeah, and Thunderbird and whatnot. Oh no, it's uh, oh that's also, Htile. Sorry, that's Htile, but uh, that's Htile. Uh, oh, Gtile yes. is is uh, an extension for GNOME that gives you tiling window manager features. Oh right, yes, I've used that for a little bit. Yeah, it gives it and it'll, yeah it auto positions windows for you and it'll, it'll tile them as you open up more windows, right? Right, and you can control like this. The you can you can set it to be automatically turn, uh, uh, tile them and for certain sections based on what app you're opening and stuff like that. Very cool. Uh, that's a nice one. And um, we did a like a, uh, we did like a GNOME customization episode ages ago. So if you go dig through the Linux Action Show archive, you'll you'll find info on that. Hey, uh, we have just a, a little bit of breaking news. 
That's right. Plasma 5 has been released today. The Plasma 5 desktop is out, and uh, we've been kicking the tires a little bit. I, I meant to do a demo on last on Sunday. I'll try to do one this Sunday. Eric, you've been running it for a few days now. What do you think? Are you impressed with... Oh, he's up in staging. Well, when he gets back, I'll ask him. I wonder if he's impressed with Plasma 5. Here's a couple of the highlights. Uh, so today, July 15, 2014, KD proudly announces the immediate availability of Plasma 5.0, providing a visually updated core desktop experience that is easy to use and familiar to the user. Plasma 5.0 introduces a new Breeze artwork concept, which you guys might have to go set. I don't know if it's turned on by default, actually. Hmm. At least on my system, it was. And I've been using the Project Neon um, ISO to play with it for a little bit. Now you have a fully uh, fully hardware-accelerated graphics stack, OpenGL, uh, with the updated modern, clean-looking uh, theme uh, sitting on top of uh, Frameworks 5. <sighs> It's it's a five, it's definitely a, it's definitely a dot o release. Um, the testing I've done is five dot o, and it's had some crashing in the limited use I've had. So I would say at this point, this is a good time for you to jump in and help the KDE project out. Don't expect it to necessarily be great for your daily driver, just like Joss warned us earlier um, last week. I, I I'm very excited about it for some reason. I don't know, Matt. I don't sense a lot of excitement from you. I feel like I got all the excitement, and you're kind of like, okay, well, yeah. I'll give it some time. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm one of those people. So I'm weird when it comes to updates. I'm one of those dot one guys, dot two guys. You know, I, I like to let things sense. sit in the oven for a while. I don't know. It's you know, but at the same time, I want fresh packages. But when it comes to desktops as a whole, right. whether it be KDE, GNOME, whatever it may be, I, I feel like that you know, leaving it in the oven a little bit doesn't hurt anything. Well, it's okay. yeah, for sure, it's right? okay to wait. This is, of course, yeah. you're a, you're no wonder you say that you're a big XFCE guy. Yes, <laughs> and look at the guy. There you go. There you go. Look at this hip music they got. Oh yeah. Plasma 5.0, visual feature guide, everybody. Coming at you with a screencast for Plasma 5. Uh, Ick, are you back? Did yeah, you, I'm back. Could you, uh, I to, yeah, I saw you I were staging it. somebody. Uh, did you uh, Did you want to share any of your impressions with KDE 5, or I'm sorry, Plasma 5? I know you've been working with it for a few days now. What do you think? Well, uh, today I am actually running it uh, completely as my main desktop, just to tr- really try it out, really get into it. I have noticed a lot of graphics glitches, a lot of bugs that still need to be worked out. I'm sure they'll get worked out because, I mean, I've just got standard Intel Intel graphics for the most part. So that's going to get fixed. Um, Typically, it has to do with the compositor. If you set the compositor right, make make sure you're using OpenGL if you want the effects. Um, But for the most part, it looks great. It it works great. It feels like it's missing a few things compared to... Mm. uh, the ex- the previous experience with four, mm-hmm. but it I, I honestly they've already said that they're going to add to that, so I can only see it getting better with time. Right, and the artwork team is continuing their work. Uh, this it's interesting. They took a great they went to great lengths to replicate the essentially the same basic functionality of the uh, previous Plasma desktop. And uh, to better and worse, I think they've improved it in some areas. The typography definitely looks a lot better. There's animations that look smoother. To me, I'm excited about this because I I love the technology at work here. And I I don't know if I'm going to switch now. I'm tempted. I also saw, uh, especially I'm a little more tempted now because uh, Billy Big Rigger linked in our subreddit how to install Plasma 5 on Arch right now. It's in the repos. So now that I can put it on an Arch box, I can just log into it. And that'd just be one of my mini desktops. Yeah, I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's like, like right, <laughs> look right here. I'm going to do it. Pac-Man-S, K5, and K5-AIDS. And that's it. That gets you Plasma 5 and, and, and Frameworks 5. 
No, that, that's it, right? Like, how am I not going to do that? Because even if it doesn't work, I could just switch back to GNOME. So, yeah, I'm doing that tonight, probably. It depends on my hard drive space. So, uh, and I know, Eric, you were talking about loading up on an Archbox, too. That, to me, is a sweet spot. I really like to try yeah. that. Because then you're going to get more updates quicker, too, I would think. Oh, yeah. Um, I, well, I would think, except right now I'm tracking the daily with the, um, right, with ne- the Project Neon. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but honestly, um, I, I want to see what the difference is where Arch is at with it. As yeah. opposed to where, uh, you know, running it alongside Kubuntu, essentially. Uh, one of, I think, the most uh, uh, well-supported desktops on Arch is KDE. Like, they, they get day-of updates and, and whatnot. I think one of the core Arch guys is a core KDE guy, but I might have my details wrong on that. But it's, like, day-of. I think one of the main distro Arch guys is the maintainer of KDE for the packaging, and he just gets it done right away. Yeah. Right. Super awesome. Uh, well, uh, we have uh, an old soapbox that we haven't gotten on for uh, for a long time. We're almost at episode 50 now, Matt. And uh, something happened. We talked about it on Sunday. It got producer Q5 really upset. And uh, we're going to talk about that next. But first, I want to thank DigitalOcean, sponsors of the Linux Unplugged program. DigitalOcean is rocking some stuff right now, you guys. This is the time to get in if you're not yet a DigitalOcean customer. Plus, if you use our promo code UnpluggedJuly, you'll get a $10 credit. Now, why would you want a $10 credit? I'll tell you why. Because DigitalOcean rocks. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. If you're quirky, you can get a cloud server spun up. But what do you do? Like 33 seconds? It was amazing. Jeez. It was amazing. Uh, but most users get a cloud server spun up in about 55 seconds. And pricing plans started only $5 per month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, a blazing fast CPU, and a terabyte of transfer for $5 a month. And if you use the promo code UnpluggedJuly, you get a $10 credit. So you can try it for two months. Absolutely free. Nothing out of your pocket. Plus, they have hourly pricing. That's another great way to go. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and now London. And uh, that's where Corky set up his new uh, DigitalOcean droplet and where he got the rock and speed. Their interface is simple. Their control panel is super intuitive. And power users can replicate that control panel on a larger scale with their new API. DigitalOcean is growing like crazy because they've combined an amazing interface with an efficient system powered by KVM and Linux. And congratulations to DigitalOcean. They announced the uh, London region today. So you can go build yourself a London DigitalOcean droplet right now and use the promo code UnpluggedJuly. And if you're doing backups, why not do a DigitalOcean droplet in the U.S. and do a DigitalOcean droplet in, the, in, the, in London and sync between them? It'll be $10 a month. And you could do it for two months for free. <laughs> why, why not do it? Go check it out, digitalocean.com. Use the promo code UnpluggedJuly. Go get yourself a root box up in the cloud that you control. And they have a great droplet management system, too, with backup snapshots, all kinds of good stuff. DNS management and HTML5 console, too. You can even watch the thing post and boot. It's pretty cool. Digitalocean.com, Unplugged July. When you check out, thank you. And thank you for, so, you know, when you used Unplugged July, that lets them know, hey, I appreciate them supporting the Unplugged show. So thanks, you guys. That's right. Well, I'll tell you, I keep opening up new droplets. I keep thinking, oh, God, I could oh, yeah. do that one thing. Oh, yeah. And I keep popping up a new one. And then I'm like, oh, you know, I can connect these together. And I, I keep uh, – it's just – it's been definitely become uh, something I spend a lot of time doing. It's a lot of fun. And Wimpy, uh, you uh, you were just telling me in the chat room here, you moved over uh, the Ubuntu Mate, uh, Mate Remix uh, repos to DigitalOcean London? I did. Um, we're, we're using build – we were using build servers in Amsterdam on DigitalOcean. I took some snapshots, spun up two instances in London and restored the snapshots and then destroyed the <coughs> Amsterdam boxes and 
Isn't that awesome? Isn't that so cool? I love it. I love it. And it, it makes such a cool technology that we all hear about in the abstract actually applicable to all of us. It makes it accessible to all of us. DigitalOcean.com. And also, they really are fast because um, the SSDs make all the difference when you're building an ISO image. And then when you've got two one-gig ISO images and you can copy them to your distribution servers in 18 seconds, that's pretty great. Yeah, buddy. That's awesome. Or like, or like Corecase spinning one up in 31 seconds. 31 seconds. Server. Okay, 31 seconds. How crazy is that? <laughs> nuts. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. He's breaking in the London data center right now. I love it. Okay. So speaking of breaking things in. Uh, Manjaro, boy, did they did they have a rough weekend? Uh, so you guys probably heard us talk about it. Uh, Pharonix ran a piece. The Manjaro developers suffer a mass exodus was the headline. Turns out not to be exactly accurate. Producer Q5Sys is pretty upset that this is still a problem, and it's been a particular soapbox of mine. It's one of the reasons I launched Tech Talk today. It's something we've talked about here on Linux Unplugged before. The state of Linux journalism and news blows. I mean, there's exceptions, and there's different types. There's casual journalism and writing, and then there's actual news and event coverage, and that's where we're particularly weak. Uh, So to recap, and I don't really mean to uh, go after uh, Michael in particular because I think it's more of a symptom of the requirements of the industry and not a reflection of his personal character. But uh, so Phronix came by some information that the Manjaro, develop- Manjaro developers were leaving the distribution. No big deal. That happens sometimes. People move on. But that's not sexy enough to drive clips, Q5 writes. He says, so what we had here was a really fragrant title, like Manjaro Linux developers experience a mass exodus because it drives clicks. It hurts the distro, but it drives clicks. Now, in the real world of news reporting, of course, he says there's a thing called verification where you independently verify from multiple sources when possible. He goes on to point out that the open source community is pretty available. A lot of developers are available on Twitter or Google Plus or on mailing lists, not always and not all projects, but probably more so than most commercial operations where journalists have to verify information from commercial companies. So he, th- he thinks it's perhaps more egregious that it's, the verification isn't happening in, in open source news coverage. Uh, and he says it's because the first to report is the first to get clicks in this world, and clicks equal money, so we've sacrificed truth for convenience and money. You have any thoughts on that part, Matt? I think he pretty much nailed it. Um, see, the problem is is that you, you do dance a balance. Content, content as a revenue source these days or as a job or as a business is tough. It's, it's tougher than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of companies and a lot of people that write get sucked into that vacuum of having to make some tough choices. They want to make, make sure they're breaking the news, but they don't always do a real good job of saying, hey, we heard through the grapevine or this has not been substantiated. This is merely a rumor. Instead, it comes out as being a factual thing. And uh, as Q5 points out, that's, that's not acceptable. You can't do stuff like that. And it does blow up in your face, and it does create problems and hardships. Here's the other thing that he goes on to touch on. This is something that I think makes it one of these problems that isn't going to get fixed. So it, what happens is you have a lot of misinformed users. The project takes a, a PR damage. It looks bad in the image. Like you, The way you and I touch on is like even if there was a max ex- exodus or not, you're, you, the point you and I were making on Sunday's Linux Action Show was it's a stain on the reputation regardless. It's a stain on the reputation, right. and it's now in the common consciousness. Uh, but Q5Sys says there's even a more ugly side. Intentionally not vi- verifying information can sometimes create a lot of drama. And drama, my friends, equals clicks. So what's our mantra? Get the story out first. If it's wrong and creates drama, no problem. That's a plus. It'll drive more traffic to the site. We can later retract any false information once we actually have been presented with the correct information. It's really quite simple math. Drama equals clicks. 
clicks equal money, thus drama equals money. Jeez. Rodden Corpse, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say is that uh, he said it was going to be kind of easier or more egregious because um, it's, it's, you, there are so many ways to get contact with these different people. And that's true, and it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing because if you think about it, it makes it harder to find out where these people are. So some projects in the open source community are almost impossible to find contact information about particular people, uh, but some are really easy. Uh, Manjaro is one of the easy ones. All you needed to go is to go to their team page on their on their about section, and you're done. Right. right. Yeah, and this is this is one of those problems where I understand like it's it's a you know you, it's a lean operation. He wants to post as fast as possible. It's a good scoop if it's true, and he also has a you know it's it it's rare to be able to legitimately totally originally break a story. You know, you can be one of the first people to jump on a story often in tech reporting, but to actually have like a source and and run an original story that then you become the originator of that story and everybody links to you, that's that's more than your average drama click. That's that's like something that sustains for a for a few days. And so that's the that's a really tempting morsel to go after and that's that's influenced by the economies of that type of site. That's why and I don't I don't see Jupiter Broadcasting isn't at a scale where we could do something like this, but I would love to have a written component to our to our shows, because if our main focus is to generate revenue from the shows and potentially through Patreons and things like that, then the news reporting becomes a function that supports our shows. And thus, the more accurate and detailed it is, the better it makes our shows. And so as a byproduct of producing our shows, we could produce better news, potentially. I don't know if that's true, but I do know we don't have the scale for it. But we can take steps at Jupiter Broadcasting. And that's why on Sunday, Rob from the Manjaro Project is going to join us on the Linux Action Show. And we'll just chat with Rob and find out what the hell is going on. And we'll get it straight from the horse's mouth. And we can ask our questions. And Matt, as a longtime Manjaro user, anything you (laughs) want to throw his way, you can ask him. And we'll (laughs) just get it straight, right? Definitely. Definitely. I think and I'd actually welcome that because I like the project. I just I was very frustrated by the fact that I felt like there was a lot of unknowns. And because it was an important box, I had to make some tough choices. But who knows? Maybe I can come back. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can be drawn back. Darren Devlin, go ahead. You have some thoughts. Yeah. I I was wondering, I mean, doesn't people that read Pharonix already have some grain of salt while reading? I mean, he also iterates really quick, the articles. It's not that it's up there maliciously um, for too long. I can't see really that big of a damage. Right. It's only as much as the original developers make it a damage. Like, oh, we are concerned Pharonix said this. Well, no. I mean, the, the original reputation damage that he, he lets out without like actually researching the the topic. That's it. Doesn't matter if you update your comment. That that article, that title is still the same thing. He didn't change the title because he would be changing the SEO stuff. <laughs> he does pretty bad clickbait titles. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. But so do I sometimes. But- yeah, here's let me just fun fact for you of the uh, guys that are not in content. If you want to survive in this industry, you better get used to clickbait or it. just re- yeah. or forget it. Just stop. Just yeah. don't even bother. I mean, like we that. we try to draw the line. Like we won't say like Manjaro is dead. Like we didn't title last yeah, that right. But exactly. uh, I mean, there's definitely a line you can cross. But you do want to kind of um, honestly, Michael you want to excite people across the malicious clickbait titles. Right. You don't want to. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah that's malicious line. stuff is horrible. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing is that, like it, what he should do, and I don't understand why he doesn't. Is okay. He's got his he's got his title. It's totally drawn you in. It's you know it's obviously hooking you in. And then when you read the article in a nice I don't know grad color at the very top, it says 
uh, rumor mill or, you know, uh, we heard through the grapevine. And then that way people know, hey, we have not substantiated this, but you might want to know this is potentially a thing. I'd be okay with that. That'd well, be fine. That's, that's a much better so idea, I think. Here's what also resonated with like, me. Go ahead. Normally uh, on news articles like on CNN or com, they, you know, if, if it's stuff they haven't confirmed yet, it's just like breaking and this is not confirmed. We've heard, blah. You can't just make claims and then update it after the fact if you mm. happen to be wrong. So if you do enough appropriate couching, like this is a developing story. Yeah. I could see that. And, specifically, yeah. and I think it has to be used carefully. Clear. Yeah. Right. You have to make it clear that you don't know this for a fact. And when you <laughs> claim you know things for a fact, that's, then yep. that's... It's the opposite. Well, and this is this was Q5's point, and maybe this is where the community comes in. Is like he says, for me, the saddest part was, and is the community continues to allow this to happen. Several times a year, we have an instance where some news site will get something so horribly wrong that it creates a huge cluster F. I mean, at the end of the day, doesn't the buck actually stop with the reader? Partly, but you can't just. Go and claim, well, it's foronics. Everybody should know to take it with a grain of salt. Right, that doesn't work. That doesn't scale. Right. I didn't and, know and, that. Yeah, the same thing has happened, uh, you know, before. You know, there was some journalist over at ZDNet read something on the FreeBSD <laughs> yeah. wiki and yeah. literally started a holy war for no reason. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yep, yep. Yeah, isn't that funny how that happens, too? And so... Uh, I don't know what the right answer is. I think, I think, I, honestly, I think part of the answer is slower journalism, and it's something Alan and I have talked about. Well, I think just more professional journalism. Like, I understand it's it's a website, but you could try harder, do less stuff. I see. I think the problem is is that he goes for he. Not, I'm not trying to say he doesn't go for quality because sometimes you can tell he worked really hard on like he had like this huge massive GPU comparison where he did like 50 GPUs or 60 GPUs. That obviously took some work. I'm not saying it doesn't work hard, but he also goes for quantity. Then you look at there's other sites out there like the link blogs where it's maybe one or two posts or three posts a day, but those three posts you almost guaranteed want to read them. Like like it's yeah. all good stuff, and that also means like you could go once a week and get a whole bunch of stuff. And I think that slower journalism, like one one of the mantras we have with TechSnap is. Uh, TechSnap is not about breaking news. We don't try to break stories in TechSnap ever. In fact, sometimes we like it if uh, maybe a week's gone by because then we do a deep analysis of all – because you have things that come in bursts of information. And then there's a slow, long tail where things get clarified and corrected and people think about it and write up posts about it. And then intelligent thinkers like Bruce Schneier and Brian Krebs write about it and you can take in what they say. And then you can really deliver something that's a, a good, concise analysis that's accurate. But when you're reporting on the moment it happens fast journalism it's just rife with errors and so i think well, the as an audience we need to say hey maybe we can slow it down a little bit what do you think of that matt well here's the here's the real issue it, it's not the journalists are definitely the causality but at the same time everybody forgives the aggregator now i've actually worked closely with a couple of websites to help them get listed with google news it doesn't just happen automatically it you know there's special site maps and all that sort of stuff the thing is is that the aggregators are never punished for rewarding this crap See, that's the thing. Whether it be Google Search or Google News or whatever the search engine or news uh, aggregator may be, we don't penalize these things because they are, in fact, rewarded for repetition. They are rewarded for quick uh, being being first on the first on the scene, and so based on those things, then writers are then put in an interesting uh, position. Sure, to game uh, it as much as they can. Their, yeah, do they, yeah, do they want to stay employed, throw their morals to the wind, or would they like to be uh, absolutely wonderful people and stand Buried. outside the sign? Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's really what it is. 
writers. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's the yeah, the writers are responsible, but at the same time, you know, I, I always tell people to never get into writing. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. So, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the thing people got to remember is also be willing to penalize your aggregator. Yeah. Or be your own aggregator. That's even better. There's no site loyalty. There's no page loyalty. There's no brand loyalty when it comes to articles. No one gives a rip who it's coming from. They care about the title and they care about the, oh, is this interesting to me? Well, it sounds like Wimpy agrees with you. So, Wimpy, let me ask yeah. you this. Uh isn't that also then sometimes uh, going to run the risk of overreach and censorship and things like that? And now all of a sudden we're asking maybe somebody like Google to be the arbiter of what's legitimate and what's not, and that's maybe a bad position to be in, Wimpy? Well, my agreement with Matt is not necessarily about Google as the aggregator, but in this case as Pharonix as the as the aggregator and publisher. I think that sometimes the articles that they post they know full well are inaccurate. And that, but they are sensational and it will drive traffic to the site sure. and what yeah. what's potentially damaging there is that it then tarnishes projects in this case Manjaro or um, it causes problems for projects unnecessarily and all that happens here is Pharonics profit and I don't want to dog on Pharonics because it's one of those sites that I read every day because like you say there are little gems in there that I don't have to go off hunting for you know it, we, in the blend of all of the other technology feeds that I consume, it's useful for actually picking up the news. That's a good but point. But does, there does seem to be a trend at Pharonix of deliberately posting what are obviously trolley articles, so, you know, to drive traffic to the site. And that you only have to read from uh, what, uh, what some people have submitted, uh, what they want reporting, to see that it's yeah, bogus. Yeah. Well, Alan, let me ask you this then. Is what Wimpy is saying is it, it becomes the responsibility of the consumer to pick the right aggregator? It, it can because, you know, their sites kind of fall into different categories, right? Some sites are just uh, aggregated. They just go out and, and kind of pick and choose a bunch of stories and, and link to them and maybe they have a summary or whatever. And then there's the other sites that actually write original content. Like on Brian Krebs' site, it's kind of a combination, right? A lot of the stuff is his own research and then he also points to other stuff. Uh, but some sites are obviously there just to collect content that other people have written. And those can be very good, and you, you basically have to choose to trust that site to pick the right articles for you. Right, and right. You you can punish them by not returning if they don't and find a different one. And that's kind of how TechSnap works, right? I don't write most of the content that we present in the show. I'm just picking through all the news that's out there and deciding which things I think uh, are important to the viewer. Right. Very much so. I think it's a lot of our shows kind of work that way. Yeah. Same with Tech Talk Today as I try to go through and pick the stories from the day that are worth discussing. And sometimes that means at the end of the week, some of them maybe didn't pan out to be great, but most of them do. And I think that's – we have so much to look at, so much to consider that that's really what we have to do now is – pick and choose that we have to learn sources we can trust and I'll, to be honest with you to you know sort of pull back the curtain a little bit that's why we do so much live stuff so you guys can show up and hear us when we're just screwing around in our raw natural selves and you can listen to us as actual human beings and decide if you trust that person if you trust that human that's telling you information and you, maybe you don't want that maybe you do but the live stream gives you a little bit of that experience and I think that's one of the things that's really great about this form of broadcasting is there is a direct avenue for you to kind of learn a little bit more and kind of decide what you think about that person and I think that's great uh, let's go uh, two last comments and we'll wrap up this topic uh, PC Wiz, you say don't blame the ad agencies bro ad agencies have to make money it makes money when they direct you to a person who's paying for ads 
So if you're being served an ad from Google's ad network to buy some rubbish on Amazon and you buy that rubbish on Amazon, then they don't care. doesn't care where they got referred yeah. to. They... Well, yeah. I mean, you really can. I mean, at each stage. In fact, I think that's kind of Rotten Corpse's point is we're all a little bit to blame, aren't we, Rotten? Yeah, I was just about to say, like, um, I mean, in a way, everybody's at fault. And if you think about it, because like the aggregators, the the article writers, the editors, even the people who are reading it, if they don't (laughs) if they don't even research what these people are saying to fact check it. And in a way, they're kind of spreading misinformation as well. Yeah, and it is. I I mean, I I hate to blame readers because, you know, you don't know what the motivation is of the person who's just sitting there reading the site. But I don't know. I think it's it's kind of in a way it taints the the sites themselves, but it also kind of taints the idea of news as a whole. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's been tainted for a long time. Yeah. And the the problem is is that you know we can we can high and mighty ourselves and pat each other on the back all day long. But yeah. at the end of the day, <laughs> the end of the day, we're all going to read it. Most yeah. of us anyway. Yeah. Um, the the other factor is is that until there is a reward slash punishment system implemented by somebody, I don't care who or wh- whatever, it won't change. Maybe period. this is it. Doesn't Maybe matter. this is the beginning of that uh, sort of pushback that yeah. that eventually forces a market correction. Maybe. Well, I I think the the solution is is basically look more toward ethical human aggregation and less toward automated aggregation. For sure, right, yeah. That I mean, that's what we do here at Jupiter Broadcasting is we are human aggregating the good content from crap. You uh, know, and one way... Robots don't do that. One so. way, and this is going to sound all uh, hipster, which will work great with my uh, new iPhone 5 <laughs> I got from Ting. Um, the other way is, honestly, if you curate who you follow on Twitter, and I know that those two words I just said, curate and Twitter together, I apologize. <laughs> uh, I will punish myself later. But if you do, if you're very choosy about who you follow, it essentially becomes like an RSS feed. So if you say, okay, this person yes. makes good stuff, this person makes good stuff, this company makes good stuff, and you follow them, and maybe it's only like 80 to 100 people you follow, every time you go to that feed... It's essentially it's good stuff from people you know, and that's one way to kind of stay up to date. Uh, yeah, and I, I until we can perfect the BS detector. Yeah. I mean, once that happens, it's all good. <laughs> what are you going to say, Alan? Uh, well, I was going to mention like the same thing because I've noticed that when the odd time I go to Facebook, the stories that are presented are always the link bait crap that I don't want to look at. Oh yeah. Whereas <laughs> Twitter, because on Twitter I'm following not so much people I went to school with as all the people in the industry that are going to tweet things right. that I might actually care about. I do wish that uh, Twitter had some more tools and settings, though, because a lot of the people I follow are international. And so when they tweet in French and Danish, I would like to just filter those ones out. Yeah. I only want to see when they're sure. tweeting in English. Although with, you know, when people tweet with all the acronyms and stuff, I'm pretty sure it's hard to tell when it's English and when it's not. But Oh, Rotten Corpse points out uh, Yahoo Pipes. Uh, all right, Daredevil, and you'll get the last word. You wanted to say Google Plus? What the F? Yes, Google Plus uh, integration in the search results, if you're logged in while you search, actually allows you to like a URL. So, and you can see like which friends of yours from Google Plus like that URL right, yeah. while you're in your search. I've never actually once found that useful, though. Like the theory of it makes sense to me. But I, essentially, it's gotten to the point now that when I see a Google Plus result in my Google search results, I just ignore it. Whole, I, like, I completely don't even see it anymore. I tune it out like an ad. Like, I do not even see it. Uh, because to me, it has yet – because usually, at absolute best, it is a Google Plus post where somebody is linking to a post. Where if Google would have just given me the, the link one link deeper, that would actually be what I want. But because they want to drive cla- traffic or something to Google Plus, I feel like it's very hit and miss. But I'll try it again. I'll give yeah. it another shot if you find it useful because I haven't tried it since they rolled it out. 
No, I think you got me wrong. What I mean is actually any search result in Google oh, allows right, yeah. you to put any. It doesn't requires to be a Google uh, Google Plus post. Right. It can be any search result. I guess the problem is their implementation currently only allows you to put like while you're still on the search page. So people are, are usually going to still find the content inside that website and then don't, not rate the site. Good point. Because you could rate the site. All right, we should move on. I think uh, I'm going to close that topic. Q5, good good post. It's something we're all thinking about. We're taking baby steps here at Jupiter Broadcasting Network to do what we can do. Uh, so we got something really, I am I am very excited about next week. I am I am so excited. I want to tell you about it first, though. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. If you would have traveled back in time and told Chris of five years ago that he'd have a sponsor like Linux Academy, he would have hit you in the face and told you to stop teasing him because that's me. <laughs> This is the perfect sponsor, because not only are they Linux enthusiasts themselves, it's a, it's a group of guys who created the system from scratch because they freaking love Linux, and they want to help people learn Linux, and they want, they want you to be able to do it at your own pace, at your own leisure, on your own system. You can download the study guides and read them offline if you want to. They've got audio and video components, so if you're a podcast listener, trust me, that's going to snap right into your existing flow. And linuxacademy.com slash unplugged will get you the summer of learning discount. So go over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged right now, brand new URL, to save 33%. 50 bucks per quarter. LinuxAcademy.com slash Unplugged is also a good place just to go check them out. Give them a hit so that way they know that uh, you heard about it here on the Unplugged Show and you appreciate them supporting us. Go check them out, you guys. They've got 7-plus Linux courses you can take. or They support 7-plus distributions for their courses. So you choose your distro. So in my case, let's just say I wanted to brush up on Fedora because as soon as Arch blows in my face, I'm switching to Fedora. So I go up to linuxacademy.com, and seriously, you could literally, I'm not even joking, this is exactly what you could do. You choose Fedora from the options, they automatically adjust all of your courseware, so now it's all Fedora-specific, right? So now for somebody who's an Arch guy, but I want to brush up on Fedora, now I'm living in the Fedora land with a guided tour. I can do self-paced tests to see where I'm at. I have step-by-step guides. This is okay, Chris, you're this far into it. You're going to be taking this next. I can generate reports at any time. I can talk to the community, see how they're doing. I have course notes and study guides for my Fedora setup. If I want to deploy a LAMP stack, a bind server, an open stack, whatever it is. They've got courses for it. They've got real-world scenarios, too, which is super handy. Like, if you have an AWS project coming up and you've never worked on AWS, or maybe you've worked on AWS, but it's been a while, and you need to load up a Linux box on there and get a web server going, they've got courses on that. And you can just go through that. They'll see this is how long it's going to take you to do this. Take it at your leisure. Download to this stuff and listen to it on, in, on your commute if you need to. It's really awesome. How to get a Linux job is also a course. And then they have communities discussing that. It's really awesome stuff. And I, I've I've been a I've been a subscriber now for um, I I think since the beginning of the year actually, and oh, wow. it, what's really cool about it, Matt, is they have a team support. So uh, if Rikai ends up getting to a point where he's uh, banging on some stuff for Jbot and he needs to get a little under the hood, uh, I can just add him to my account as a group account, and he can get in here, and now we can work with each other. So it's really cool if you're in a team, you can do that, or if you just want to work on your own when you have some time. It's a really cool system. They've added support, too, for uh, more and more AWS courses. And then as you need a server in any of the courses, they'll just spin one up on the back end. And they're adding new courseware all the time. So there's always new stuff to go check out and learn. And if 
you know, you know you don't have, you don't have to create a new VM every time you want to go learn something new. They manage all that for you as part of the service. And when you're taking AWS courses, that means you don't have to pay for AWS because it's all included with the service. LinuxAcademy.com/unplug. Get that 33% discount and take your skills up to the next level. There's really never been a better time. And this is such an amazing sponsor. It's a perfect match with our audience. It's working with another independent startup company who's doing exactly something that honestly, if I if you know if I had multiple lives, if I had clones of me, I would love to run a site like Linux Academy. It's such a perfect companion to your Jupiter Broadcasting experience because we talk about this stuff, and then you can go get nitty gritty with that stuff. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And thanks to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged show. You know what's awesome about it? So I'm always hearing from people via email. It's like, you know, oh, I'm looking to advance my career in this field, and I, I really need to gain some skills, and I really don't have time to go to a brick-and-mortar school or, hey, I'm unemployed, and I'm looking to get some Linux skills in the first place or whatnot. Yep. This is a great place to yep. actually get your feet wet and get it done today. Yeah, it's so, so great. And it's, yeah. it's such a neat system, and they built it just to do this. Uh, so I, a couple of things. Um, also, just a reminder, jo- join us on Sunday at the Linux Action Show, 10 a.m. Pacific, jblive.tv to uh, ask your questions to Rob from Manjaro. And uh, keep an eye on the Linux Action Show subreddit. We might start a thread up there with your questions. But keep it civil. I mean, I don't think you wouldn't, but I'm just saying. Uh, and uh, kind of excited. Uh, Noah, uh, Colonel Linux, and uh, Eric and I are all heading down to OSCon. We'll report back. Matt will tell you how it went. And get, guess what? <laughs> we decided I went for the train. Going to ride the train oh, nice. down. I'm really okay. looking forward to that. So Eric and I I'm are, excited. Yeah, we're catching the train in Seattle. And uh, it's a kind of an evening one, so Noah's going to pick us up in Portland like like at nine nine thirty at night. <laughs> it's late, yeah. but it's a three hour train ride. But it's got Wi Fi pretty much the whole way there. So I figure, you know, bring bring the Kindle, bring a few podcasts, work on some show notes during the drive, and we'll just kind of hang. Out. I don't know if the, I, I don't know if they're going to feed us, Eric, because of the time or what, but we'll figure that. Yeah, out. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, yeah, we'll definitely figure that out. I'm sure they have some sort of food on board. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I imagine it's fire on board. Uh, you, uh, fire most trains will have like a kind of a snack cart uh, galley type situation. Yeah, so. yeah, okay. okay. Uh, bring water uh, that because otherwise you'll be paying through the nose for it. Um, okay. That's my big tip. So definitely bring lots of water and bring little snacks uh, uh, like granola bar type things. Anything like that would do well. Hmm, so. Good idea. Here's, here's my tip. My tip is don't eat anything on the train and buy me dinner when you get to Portland. At 9.30 at night, though? <laughs> there you go. I mean, I'm, I'm down for that, but uh, all right, I'll have a snack. I'll hold me over and maybe a snack and a flask. I'll bring, a, I'll bring my flask and a granola bar, and I'll be all right. <laughs> I'll, make, I'll make it for the trip. Uh, so because of our OS Con shenanigans, and of course that means we're going to come back with a bunch of interviews and stuff like that, but because of our OS Con, or OSCON, I shouldn't call it OS Con, OSCON shenanigans next week, we're going to record episode 50 of Linux Unplugged, Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific at JB Live, right after Coda Radio on Monday. So the way it's going to work on Monday, Tech Talk today in the morning, Coda Radio, and then Linux Unplugged immediately following Coda Radio. So if you if you normally join us for the mumble, wham, look at this. We have a huge room today. Uh, you guys, please uh, show up on Monday and hang out with us because we're going to pre-record for Tuesday. So that way when we get down to OSCON, we go balls to the wall. We don't have to worry about stopping to do a show because we'll just be getting interviews and clips. We're only there for two days, so we really got to make the most out of it because uh, Ick and I uh, hop on the train to go back Wednesday afternoon so that way I can make it back here for TechSnap because you can't miss the streak of TechSnap. So uh, we're only there for two days, but if you're going to be down at OSCON or if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, the 22nd or the 23rd, tweet me at ChrisLAS or uh, shout out in the um, Linux Action Show subreddit. We'd love to meet up with you and shake your hand and maybe buy you a burger or a beer or something like that. So that'll be it's going to be a 
you know, it's perfect. It's perfect because it's a three-hour train ride. We go down there. We get some great interviews for the show. We spend the night or two nights down there. We come back up. It's my ideal kind of uh, coverage because you can just do it in a couple of days. You don't have to fly anywhere. That's low exactly. stress. Yeah, low stress. And, and Noah, you know, once again, is going to be awesome. And he's going to bring some cameras and equipment for us. And uh, hopefully he'll be wearing Google Glass. I Not can... for the interview. Oh, come on. That's the oh, thing. Come Everybody on, come loves on. it. You know, Everybody loves Google Glass, I'm right? I'm told it's not that popular. <laughs> oh, that's weird. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got a good watch, too. See, people are checking out your wares, Noah. You, you're becoming a bit of a celebrity, I think. Uh, all right, well, I'll, I'll wrap us up there. Who's got an open mic? Who's uh, Rotten? Rotten, you got an open mic there, Rotten. Uh, okay, so I'll leave us there. Just want to also mention Tech Talk today. I do that uh, Monday through Thursday, jblive.tv, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. We often talk about Linux-related stuff in the general tech news as it applies through the filter of an OS or of an open-source advocate and a Linux user. So, like, uh, sometimes I have a poke at Microsoft, I'll admit it, but I can't help it. It's in my nature. But I think we still have a good time. So if you want to catch that, you can also join us live for there. We have our virtual lug. It's kind of like a technology call-in morning show. Only instead of call-ins, we have a mumble room, and it's way cooler than a call-in show because it's doing it like you would do it if it was the year 2014. So Tech Talk today, true. Monday through Thursday. And uh, one of these days, Matt, when uh, like, like there's not a faux show or something like that after the Linux Action Show, we should have thought of this. I should do a Tech Talk today with you while you're here as a pre-record. I should have thought of that. Maybe. Well, oh, that'd be awesome. Well, we'll think about it. We'll discuss it off air and figure out a time we could do that because it would be fun to have you on Tech Talk today. I think that would be a good time, Matt. That would be a good time. All right. Well, I'll leave it right there, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Linux Unplugged. Don't forget, you can go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose Linux Unplugged from the dropdown or even better, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. We do this show normally on Tuesdays, but we'll do it on Monday, 1 p.m. Pacific next week for episode 50. 50 episodes. Wow. Holy cow. All right, Matt. Well, I'll see you on Sunday, okay? All right, see you then. All right, everyone, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. If we don't see you on Sunday for the big show, we'll see you right back here next Tuesday. SSL, the brand new port, not secure on Linux. In fact, there seems to be a pretty major error found in LibreSSL. The problem resides in the pseudo-random number generator that LibreSSL relies on to create keys that can be guessed even when the attacker uses an extremely fast computer. The failure results in cases where the same 16-bit PID is used to designate two or more processes. Linux ensures that a process can never have the same ID as a child process that it spawned, but it remains possible for a process to have the same PID as a grandparent process. The condition appears to be an edge case, but it's one that many uh, believe is possible with the Linux fork underscore rand program forks if it does it enough times to produce identical PIDs. OpenSSL, the open source program called LibreSSL, aims to replace, has always had ways to recover from such cases. However, LibreSSL does not, at least on Linux at this time.
Anyways, the website isn't working anymore. LibraSSL.org is down. Really? Wow. Yeah, this, you know, it's early days. It's too soon to be relying on LibraSSL right now. I mean, that's that's a given. It's a brand new project. You know, but I... True, true. I have seen some threads where people have already put it in production. It's like, whoa, wow. It's one of these another malicious headlines. They also, like, made a lot of claims like they were going to fix everything, and nope. Well, it takes time. I would say this is the more prominent or... One that shows most promise. Yeah. Well, then there's the Google have got boring SSL, which is a fork of open SSL now. Right, right, which is like intentionally trying to avoid problems like this, isn't it? <laughs> Did you see um, they, they put a, a post up the, uh, yesterday about um, how the Linux 3.16 kernel um, is like super fast. Ubuntu with yeah. that kernel. I'm not yeah. saying it was Ubuntu, but Linux with that kernel is faster than OS ten on a MacBook. Right. And then the entire comment thread was arguing about Linux versus GNU slash Linux. Oh! <laughs> 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 <laughs>